You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Good to see you all here today. Um, as Steve said, my name is Andrew. Um, it is a pleasure to serve as one of the elders here on the team, um, and it's a a special treat to be bringing God's Word to you here this morning. Um, as some of you may know, we are in the midst of this sermon series on our, pers- uh, on our um, rhythms of grace. These are nine pursuits of healthy discipleship. Uh, we come back to this series every few years as a church just to remind us of what are the core things that we're striving to exemplify as a body. And so we group these rhythms into three categories. We have worship, community, and mercy. And today, I've been tasked with exploring one of our community rhythms, which is relational pursuit. And when I was first given this topic a few months ago of relational pursuit, my mind immediately went back to college during my freshman year when I was doing a little bit of relational pursuit myself. Um, There was a cute girl with brown curly hair and blue eyes I had been trying to get her attention for a while. Um, little did I know, I, dating the girl across the hall from her, like the first week of school, and then immediately breaking up, I got her attention, but maybe not in the best way that I would have wanted to a few weeks later, a few months later at this point, uh, when I was trying to get acquainted with Rachel. Um, but here we were on Grove City College's campus. We were in the Hicks Dining Hall, and this was a very special night at Grove City. Um, there's chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream in the, uh, in, the, in the dessert area right there. That didn't happen all the time. Um, so I'm sitting at my table with my friends. We're chatting, having a good time. And I see over there on the other side of the dining hall, there's, there she goes. There's that curly-haired girl going to stand in line to get her ice cream. And I was like, guys, this is my chance. Um, so I got up. I went over there. I got in line right behind her. Wasn't ready for dessert, nothing like that. Wasn't thinking about ice cream. I was there for one reason alone, and that was to have a conversation um, and because Rachel's like the nicest girl in the world, of course she had like a massive smile on her face. We had a great conversation. I thought it went really, really well. We set up another time to hang out later on. I walked back to the table feeling like a million bucks, um, and I thought I was on top of the world. Little did I know, a few months later, when Rachel told me her side of the story, because there's always two sides of a story. Uh, there she is standing in line, and she sees me coming up, and she says, In that moment, there was an instant decision. Is it worth it? (laughs) Do I stay here and endure a conversation with this Andrew kid who, little to my knowledge, because of that incident with the girl in the hall, they had taken to calling me dipstick. (laughs) I suppose it's meant to rhyme with Dembski in some way. I didn't know any of this was going on. And so she was there doing this equation in her head of, is it worth it to have the conversation with Andrew? Fortunately, for our young love, she likes chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream more than she wanted to stay away from that conversation. So I had a great, great night that time, um, and we were able to have a conversation, and it led to, well, we're married now, so you can do the math. Um, We, in that moment, um, I was super excited, didn't know where it was going from her side of things. That's, That's what pursuit looks like sometimes. But today, fortunately, I'm not here to give you college dating advice or lessons. Um, We're here to talk about how we pursue each other intentionally as a body. 
Um, so to help set the table for this, I just want to start by reading the definition of relational pursuit in the materials that Liberty puts out around these rhythms of grace. So we meet with other people, becoming friends and helping each other to live as disciples of Jesus Christ. We seek to encourage and care for our brothers and sisters in Christ and also to accept their input into our own life. There are a variety of venues and ways these relationships can form and deepen in our church. But generally speaking, we encourage you to pursue people of, across ages and life stages. Someone older and wiser, peers uh, the same age or stage of life, and a younger person, either by faith or by age or both. Confession of sin and related accountability relationships are here, as well as the simple pleasures of a shared meal, outings, and hobbies with other Christians. Disciples make disciples, and disciples enjoy time and life with other believers. So what we see in this overview is an active participation. Church isn't meant to be a spectator sport where we just sit back and are entertained. We all need to have skin in this game to make it worth it. And we model the pursuit of each other because Christ modeled that first for us. And we see God modeling this pursuit across the entire story of redemption. And we heard it just this morning here in Genesis 3, God walking through the garden um, in the cool of the morning um, as Adam and Eve hide in their shame. He's pursuing them, though they just broke the one rule that he gave them. We see it again in Genesis 21, when God meets Hagar in the hour of her desperation. She's been wandering through the desert and her baby is about to die. She places the baby down in desperation and she, she's looking across at that baby with no other options. And in that moment, this woman... Um, is met by God, and God provides for her in that instance. We see this as God meets Moses in the burning bush while he's in the wilderness tending his sheep. We see it with Jonah as he tries and tries to run away from God, but God pursues him even to the depths of the sea. And we see it in the New Testament as Jesus seeks out Matthew and Andrew and Peter and calls them to be apostles. We see it in his conversations with the woman at the well when he tells her everything about herself, despite the fact that she was a Sumerian woman and that in their cultural context, a Jewish man wouldn't be caught speaking to a Samaritan, much less a Samaritan woman. Here we see Jesus crossing cultural norms to show his heart for her, that despite the decisions that she had made or her race, that there's nothing that she could do to overcome his love for her. We see Christ pursue his disciples even after his death by visiting them while they're fishing on the sea. We see it in the pursuit of the Apostle Paul when he's on the route to Damascus and he's going there to persecute the church. And yet in that act of sin, God is still pursuing him. Christ meets him right there. You and I, we see the pattern of pursuit by the Holy Spirit to this day. The Holy Spirit pursues our hearts, planting seeds of faith, calling us to repentance. And we see, uh, we see in this pursuit um, the call to love, to unity, to harmony, all of these things rooted in Christ. We see these themes shared by the Apostle Peter, by the Apostle John and Paul and the author of Hebrews. And today we're going to focus on one passage in particular where we see these themes coming up again. So if you have Bibles, you can turn them to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be studying verses 12 through 17 today. Before I jump into these verses in particular, let me set the, the stage a little bit. Um, Paul has shared a lot in this letter leading up to this point. 
Um, and I find it helpful if we can just get a high-level view of what's been said first so that we can digest these verses in context. In this letter, Paul is encouraging the church to remember who they are. He opens by sharing his affection and his heart for them. He's not ceased to pray for them, even though he's never met them in person. And I find this fascinating that Paul has a burning heart for this group of believers, and they've never even met face-to-face. I think that that speaks to the connection that we share as saints in Christ. He reminds them of who Christ is, that he is the firstborn of all creation and the image of the invisible God. He urges them not to be deceived, but to cling to Christ for, quote, in him the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell, and that we are filled in him. Here Paul is reminding us of our creator, stepping down into his own creation, becoming flesh. The creator became the created, but while doing that, didn't lose any of his divinity at all. He goes on to say that is, um, that is Christ, in Christ, we're circumcised with a circumcision that is not of hands. Circumcision was a practice that God instituted to his people as a physical reminder that they were set apart and they were different from the world around them. And so here's a group of people, the descendants of Abraham, this nation of Israel. God has sought them out and pursued them, um, and he's given them a sign to show that they are different from the rest of the world. What Paul's doing here in Colossians is he's highlighting this parallel, and he's showing that we are set apart as well when we are found in Christ. There's not a physical um, mark of that separation anymore. The new covenant has taken that away. But we have a, a circumcision that is without hands, and it is on the heart. And that work has been done by Jesus, um, and he has set us apart for himself. Paul goes on to say that in addition to that circumcision that isn't from hands, we're also buried in baptism. This is our external proclamation that we've died to ourselves and we've risen again to new life, new life in Christ. So as we approach this this text today, I want you to have these two big ideas in mind that are leading up to this passage right here. First, we are set apart as the body of Christ from the rest of the world. And second, that we have died to our old self and we are raised to new life in Christ. And it's with those two ideas in mind that I want to go into the text this morning. So, so again, we're in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and he gave it to us because he loves us. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, as we examine your word today, would your spirit be present amongst us? 
Would you open our eyes to see and understand what you have for us today? And may you strengthen our faith, Lord, to act on it. Amen. So as we explore this topic of relational pursuit today, I want to do so in three parts. The first is, what is relational pursuit? The second is, how are we meant to pursue relationships with each other? And the third is, where can we practice pursuit? So that's, what is relational pursuit? How are we meant to pursue relationships with each other? And where can we practice pursuit? So what is relational pursuit? I think there's a, there's a short answer to that question, and that, that is that relational pursuit is our response to our model. Christ first pursued us, and even from the beginning of time, he knew us and set us apart. It was God who placed faith in our hearts, uh, which gave us the desire to follow him. And by looking to his model, um, and it's only in that we see his example, that we're meant to interpret this call And if we go back to verses 12 through 15 again, it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Are these the attributes that we see in our world? Absolutely not. As we look out into the world, as we watch the news, as we just observe things around us, we see that what we are called to is just the mirror opposite of cultural norms. Um... These traits aren't just who you and I are called to be individually as Christians. These are meant to govern how we interact together corporately as well. So you're going to hear that throughout the theme here where we've got an individual call and a corporate call together and we're meant to live those things out in balance. I'm not sure about you guys. I don't have problems being patient with myself at all. My timing's excellent. Um... I always am in the right mood to match the circumstances that we're in. I don't struggle with that. Where I struggle is when my world touches your world. Or when at 5 o'clock my world bumps into my little girl's world as they come into the office. When I'm, my head's still at work, but now I've got to be home. Um, or when I've got a tiff with my brother and that, that hits off. Or something with my wife. That's when the struggle is there. It's when I interact with other people or when we interact with each other. And that's the friction. And it's in that where we, we rely on the grace of God and his spirit to smooth that over and to bring us together. And as we think about what is relational pursuit and we look at Christ as our example, I think it's, it's important for us to ask, how does Christ pursue us? And for me, I have to answer this question personally. Um, So how does Christ pursue me? I found him in the moments of uncertainty where I've hit limits and I don't know know where to go next. I found him in my guilt when I've come back to the same sin over and over again and can't seem to get my act together. I've met him in moments of intense joy when our kids were born, We were married when our nieces or nephews were born. 
exciting moments like that, uh, just overwhelmed with thankfulness and sensing God's presence there. For me, Christ pursues me in the peace of his presence. It's a quiet understanding that I'm fully known, fully seen, and yet in that fully loved. It leaves me feeling with a sense of acceptance, of togetherness with him, that I'm swept up into something greater than myself. And at that moment, the weight of the situation, whatever it is that I'm facing, melts away. And in its place, I find rest in him. He bears with me to the point of bringing me to dependence on him. And in that, I know that I'm loved. And this is a promise for all of us. One of my favorite books in the Bible is John chapter 17. This is the high priestly prayer. And in this prayer, it's happening right before Jesus is about to be arrested and put on trial and then executed for for us. Um, But in this chapter, we see the burning heart that Christ has for his church. If we look at John chapter 17, verse 20, it says, and this is Christ speaking to the Father, I do not ask for these only, that is his disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that's you and I today, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is Christ's heart for us. He wants you to know that you are loved and you are in him. And that it's not by anything that you have done or I have done. We haven't merited Christ's affection towards us. We are but sinners. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And it's in that state of deadness that he pursues us. A corpse can't do anything to raise a hand and win favor. A corpse is dead. And that's who we are in our own fallen state. And it's in that state of death and depravity that Christ meets us. And he renews our hearts in that moment. So let's look again to Colossians 3. And let's look at verse 13 here. I want you to notice that word bearing right at the beginning of verse 13. Bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. This speaks again to that active, conscious response. It means engaging in the relationship. It's easy to tune things out, especially relationally, when things get hard with a friend or even with a spouse or your kids. I'm just not going to go there anymore. I'm not going to reply to that text. I'm just going to let time drift things apart. Um, I'm fortunate in that there was one moment where that did not happen to me, where I did something dumb to one of my friends. Um, He's one of my best buddies, business partners together. Um, Gray and I have known each other for years. We went to Grove City together. We played lacrosse together. Um, We were in the same fraternity together. We played um, played lacrosse, played frisbee, played um, all sorts of things, led Bible studies together. And after, after college, we decided we hadn't had enough time hanging out with each other, and so we wanted to go into business together. And so our first year of business, uh, we ran things remotely, like way back before it was cool. Um, and that was, that was hard back then in 2011. Um, it made collaboration really hard. And so what we did is after the first year, we all decided to move into the same general area and have a physical office, physical location where we could launch our business. Um, and so we, were, we had moved out to the Pittsburgh area, but I was working up close to Youngstown, Ohio. 
And that was a great time for the business. We found a lot of energy and gained a lot of momentum in that year together. Um, but it was really hard for Rachel and I because she was enrolled in grad school at the time. And she was nannying during the day and taking classes at night. And she was commuting down into the city. I was commuting up to the office. And so we only saw each other for maybe an hour a day. And it was just hard. Um, and so we got to a point relationally where we had to make a change. And so we decided we were going to leave the town of Cranberry where we were living and move down into the city. And she got a job as a resident director at Chatham University. So we're getting free housing on campus, living in Shadyside, right between Shadyside and Squirrel Hill. Just a beautiful neighborhood with great opportunity. Um, we were really, really excited about this. But in the midst of all this, I never mentioned that to Gray at all. Um, and it was, it was over a casual conversation while I was making coffee in the office one morning um, that I told him that we were doing this, that Rachel got this job, we're going to move to the city, and that means I'm going back to remote now. Um, I could see in the moment that it, like, he was really taken aback by it, but he was pretty quiet. Um, and he, like, he was gracious about it. He asked me questions, timeline, stuff like that. said how excited he was for Rachel to have this new opportunity. And that was pretty much it. We just kind of went back to our day-to-day, doing our thing. It was a few days later, though, that I feel like I really realized the gravity of what I had done because I got to the office, and he kind of met me at the door. He's like, we need to have a conversation. And we went to the conference room. The conference room is where the real conversations happen. <laughs> And my name's on the LLC, so I wasn't getting fired, but I knew that this was real and that something big was about to happen. And we sat down there in this conference room. Um, it was right at the corner, and he slid a piece of paper across the table to me. Um, and I didn't know what this was going to be. And he said, this is a letter, and he asked me to read that letter right there. And what the letter expressed was his, his hurt, his frustration at what I had done and the way that I had done it and communicated it. At this point, this wasn't something that could be reversed. You know, we were already out of our lease. We were already, Rachel was already accepted, had the job. This was happening. And in the midst of that, even though the circumstances weren't going to change, he took the time to write out how he was feeling, how what I had did had made him feel. And in that, he expressed that he didn't want this to impact our relationship. He didn't want, I was the one who stabbed with the dagger, and he didn't want it to impact our relationship. Um, That letter was one of the best gifts that he had ever given, he could have ever given to me. And it was just such a tangible example of what it means to relationally push through a hurt and not allow that hurt to become a wall. That could have been a barrier that just was kind of a turning point that, that drifted us apart further and further. But as a result of the time and intentionality that he invested in our relationship, it turned out to be a magnet that drew us together through time. And we're still in business together, and we're still great friends today. He modeled in that moment um, Christ to me in the face of my transgression to him. And that showed me what relational pursuit looked like in real life. And thanks to his kindness and humility and patience, again, we're still friends today. We've all transgressed God in so many ways, myself, each and every one of us, more ways than we can count. And yet the Apostle Paul says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He pursues us in the midst of our transgressions. Though we are the ones doing the wrong, he won't let that build a wall between us and him, and he will push through it. So if that is what relational pursuit is modeled in Christ, let's explore now how we're meant to pursue relationships with each other. And let's jump back to verse 14 here. And above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, 
to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. Church, we're called to love each other. Above all else, above all disagreements, we're called to love each other. And I think if we pause here and we rest on this call, the simplicity of our faith becomes unavoidable. Christ loved us when we were unlovable. And what does he ask of us now that we are in him, but to love him and to love each other? And I believe this is something that we do really well here at Liberty, so I want to celebrate that. It's not to say that we're perfect or we get it right in every instance, but I believe that as a body we strive for this well and we model it well. And it's my prayer that we would continue to model this to those that are new to our body who come in the door for the first time, that they would feel that same sense that we, we felt as we first came here, um, that we would greet them in that same manner. But as you look out onto the world, this is hardly what we see. Our culture is a culture that's doubting fundamental things at this point. What is a man? What is a woman? What is a marriage? What does it mean to commit to one person for life? How can we live in this world surrounded by this culture that elevates individual autonomy and self-truth above all else? How can we as Christians live in this world and not be tainted by this world? How can we as a body exemplify this call or the church corporately exemplify this call across the world? I think Paul lays out the answer in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. To let the word of Christ dwell in you richly is to study his word, the Bible. Not just to read it, but to meditate on it and to dwell there. It is through, the, through Christ, through God's word, that the spirit works in our hearts and transforms us and draws us closer and closer to him. And this is not just something that we're called to do by ourselves individually. This is what we do together corporately. Um, this corporate togethering um, is what we call discipleship. And our, deci- our desire here at Liberty is that we would be a church that is known by making disciples. Uh, we, would, we would desire that everyone here would be discipled and also be actively discipling somebody else. This is, discipling is a key step in the process of sanctification. If we're justified in Christ when we place our faith in him, that means his work stands on our behalf. We are saved from our sins. The process of sanctification comes next. And that is while we are believers, we are drawn one degree of holiness to another into Christ. Christ, again, is our model, and we are sanctified by living life with each other. That is one of the tools that God gave us to become more like Christ. His spirit is present with us. We have his word to learn from, and we have each other to look to and learn from as well. I think it's a powerful, powerful gift that God gave us is that this is not an individual track where each one of us individually are supernaturally gifted all that we need to survive and thrive as Christians. But by the Spirit's power, we can lean on each other and drive closer to Christ. In his book, Deep Discipleship, Pastor J.T. English says that the local church is uniquely appointed in God's divine providence and wisdom to make disciples. It's not the job of a seminary or of a podcast or of a retreat to make disciples. It's the job of the local church. And we are the church. This is you and me acting together. I I feel like there's an idea sometimes that church leadership is meant to do certain things uh, for the church. 
And that is true. Church leadership is there to provide framework and structure. But what I want you to hear today is the call to engage together. And it is to have that spiritual appetite, that spiritual thirst for togethering, which again, I see modeled here, but I want to encourage more of it, that this is going to be organic. If this is something that is forced, it's going to feel forced. But this is something that we can pursue each other naturally by having a meal together, by taking a meal to somebody else. Simple acts of building relationship with each other. In Deep Discipleship, English points out that there are two main challenges to creating disciples within the church. The first is self-centered discipleship, and the second is spiritual apathy. The first he defines as the thought that salvation, not being found in knowing God, but in knowing and being true to yourself. So kind of filtering everything through your own lens, your own politics, your own theology, your own, um, your own person that you like to listen to, whatever it might be. Um, doing all of that so that the answer serves your end or my end. And the second, spiritual apathy, he calls the thought that we settle into boredom with Jesus as long as we're not bored with church. And in this, the church becomes just kind of a gathering place, a place to get together so we can watch our kids communally. We can have people over for dinner and make some friends, get some help when we move maybe. Um, and Lord, would that not be what we see here at Liberty? To avoid these pitfalls and live up to this call of relational pursuit We must keep Christ preeminent in all things. Without Christ, this call will fall flat. And it is only on leaning on the power of Christ in his spirit that we can hope to fulfill this call and loving each other to the fullest. And again, this is personal and it's communal. And it's simple to say, but it requires a daily habit of living it out in practice. So now that we've explored what is relational pursuit and how we're meant to pursue those relationships with each other, Let's finally explore how we can practice pursuit. So if the local church is the place where disciples are made and where you can be discipled, what are some practical ways to pursue these goals together? Um, I want to break this into two sections. First is established channels, and the second is going to be ordinary channels. And I want you to know that I kind of weigh these both on the same level, that one is not more important, one is not less important than the other but rather the opposite. If you find that you are overloaded on one of these two sides, I would encourage you just to look at that and evaluate that and see, can you find a balance between these two things? So on the established channel side, um, the first one to highlight here is gathered worship. Um, This is our chance to come together each week and to live out Paul's call uh, that he presents in verse 16. And that is that we should let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, and hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And I think here again, we see the importance of being together here physically, of singing together, of praising God together, of confessing together, being reassured together, hearing God's word together, coming to this table together, praying together, and again, being challenged and charged to go out into the world. Uh, Completing these rhythms together reminds us that we're not alone in this walk. And it can feel lonely in, in the week as a Christian, but to come here and to see each other and to hear each other sing is to be refreshed. And the Spirit moves through that. That's not just a feel-good, but that's, again, a tool that, we, that God has given us that helps in our sanctification. Another established channel is service in the church. Again, we look at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I'm not sure about you guys, but few activities require more patience from me than when I'm trying to deliver like a really stoic point in the kindergarten through second grade class back there, and they're just not having it. There's like, there's lights going around the room, or they're, they're still playing games or whatever it would be. And it's even worse in the crawlers and movers room when you're trying to like make an even simpler point and the Cheerios go flying. Um, it feels like a war zone back there at times. Um, and that's funny on one side that, yeah, it, it does feel crazy, and it is crazy, but at the same time, it is a war zone because there's a spiritual war on for their souls. And it's not up to us to save these children. It's not up to save our own children or the children of this body. God is sovereign in all things. But through his sovereignty, he works through his people to bring new people, to bring lost souls to him. That is both people outside this church and people who are in this church, our children, as they, as they raise, are raised up here. We also have ministries of mercy. And you can volunteer to serve in New Hope. Um, you can make meals for Peace Promise. But you can also serve this body here by caring for people who are sick, new people who've recently moved here, um, new parents by baking, making meals, welcoming those babies into the world. And I think it's amazing that we have this opportunity as a church to tangibly serve each other and to serve people that we don't know really well yet. If a, if a meal request list is out there, we can sign up and bring somebody a meal that we've never met before, go to their house, knock on their door, go in and have a conversation with them for the very first time ever. And that's now a door open to a new relationship. Where else in this life can you do that? If I just made a meal and walked across the street and gave it to somebody, they'd like think I'm selling windows or something. Um, we have a unique chance to build relationships here in the body if we choose to engage and pursue it. And the last uh, established channel I want to highlight here is Bible studies. We have an amazing level of Bible study participation, as Steve laid out earlier. Uh, really grateful for that. And this is just a great channel for us to engage and practice relational pursuit. Uh, we can study God's Word together, and it builds on the sermon series that we go through in the fall and the spring but it's also a chance to relationally connect with each other. And in my personal experience, um, the men in my Bible study have become my core fellowship and accountability connections here at church, and they've also become some of my closest friends. We have fun together. We study God's Word together. We pray intentionally for each other, and we openly share with each other. And there are three aspects of this group that I believe have helped us sustain these things across a number of years now. Um, and that's while people have been coming and going from the group as well. So we haven't been lucky and just had like the same people in our study the whole time, but I feel like the heart of our group has been able to stay consistent because of these things. The first is a commitment to authenticity. Uh, if we're going to go to the trouble to meet with each other each week for two hours and drive across town to be there, let's be real with each other. And I think our group has embodied this well. I'll challenge you guys to do the same. The second is a commitment to attending. We take this a little bit too far, perhaps, sometimes, um, but we are committed to showing up. And if you are not there, you will be providing refreshment the next time um, you do arrive. It's part, of the, it's part of the pact that you sign to be a member of our group. Um, and people take it seriously, and because we're consistently showing up there together, we're able to engage in life together and learn from each other. And the third is a commitment to regular updates each week. And we use a, a five-question framework for this. Um, every time we gather, these are called the five band questions. Um, they were introduced to me during a men's retreat a few years ago. Um, they were used by the Methodist Church as a discipleship tool back when that movement was gaining a lot of momentum. 
And here are the five questions. The first is, how is your soul? Second is, what are your struggles and successes this week? The third is, do you have any sin to confess? Is there anything that you'd like to keep secret? And finally, how do you feel the Holy Spirit prompting you this week? So again, that's how is it, or how is your soul? What are, you, what are your struggles and successes this week? Do you have any sins to confess? Is there anything you'd like to keep secret? And do you feel the Holy Spirit, how do you feel the Holy Spirit prompting you this week? Now it's a commitment to go through all five of those questions together. The first time we did it, it took a long time to, to work through all of that. Um, the way we structure our Bible study typically is the first hour we spend in the study and the second hour we spend on those questions. And one person will go around and answer all five of those questions and then another guy in the group will pray for them right there. Um, it's, it's intentional and it takes time. And I think it's beneficial if you only ask these questions of your group once. But if you ask them for a year, you gain a totally different level of engagement and understanding of each other. And God works through that. It's through our struggles that we're encouraged and we're prodded closer to him. So these are uh, the examples of established channels um, that, through which we can practice relational pursuit. What are the ordinary ones? And the first one I want to highlight is the home. Uh, when you have kids in the house, it's super easy to feel like you don't have the capacity to do pretty much anything. And a lot of the times, that is true. Um, kids are a lot. Um, but it's, it's important to remember the kingdom work that happens in the home. And growing up, my dad, when I was a young believer, relationally pursued me through sports. Um, I was in middle school and high school. My dad had a job, um, first in New York and then in Ohio, where he was working on the road all week and then would come home on the weekends. And we butted heads a lot in that season of life. Um, but our phone calls at night, he would engage me around my lacrosse practices, and he would say, how was worship today? And in the midst of that ordinary interaction of just going to practice and talking to dad about it afterwards, he made that a kingdom-focused conversation in the midst of the ordinary. And that was a blessing to me. Because through sports, I learned when, when things are going really, really well, not to think too highly of myself. And when things are going really poorly, which can happen a lot when you're a goalie, um, to not, not let those things define you, um, but to, to place your faith in Jesus in those frustrating moments. And those were good training grounds um, for real life. Another ordinary way to pursue um, fellow believers is through your extended family. Um, growing up, my grandparents taught us, my siblings and I, every Tuesday. We were homeschooled, and so on Tuesday morning, we'd go to Mimi and Grandpa's house, and Grandpa took history. Lots of trips to Gettysburg were involved there, and Mimi took Bible. And I remember from a very young age, crawling up under her bed and just seeing her well-worn Bible laid out there on the sheets. And it was underlined, and it was highlighted, and it was filled with notes and cards from her grandkids. She spent her life in that Bible, in prayer and in reading. And together, we would learn the names of the apostles. We would study memory verses together. And they were small moments, but she intentionally did that. And though she's gone to be with Jesus now, the, the, the fruit of that work that she did in those early years is still paying dividends today. That helped establish my faith as a young boy. Um, and to see her model what it looked like to faithfully study herself, but also engage her grandkids was a great example. And the last place I'll highlight here is our workplaces. 
our neighborhoods, our living facilities, our schools, our communities at large. I think a lot gets said about evangelizing people who are not in the church in those spaces, but a lot can also equally be said about engaging other Christians who you find in those places, whether that's another parent on the sidelines of a sports game or someone else at a school meeting, uh, someone at work that you know is a Christian. Pursue those relationships, even if they don't go to liberty or if they're a different denomination than you. Uh, These are fellow believers in the world with you, and it's a unique opportunity to pursue the kingdom of Christ and to build a relationship there and even pray for whatever the context is that you are together involved in, if that's the sports team or if it's a, a Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts club, whatever it is, the Spirit can work there through, through believers who maybe don't go to the same church. So in conclusion, uh, we're called in Colossians 3 to pursue each other with compassionate hearts, with kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another in love. And we can only live up to this, this call if the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, And if by his work, by the work of his spirit, we press on together in teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts towards God. And when we do all this in the name of Jesus, um, he is glorified. So would you join me in prayer? Lord God, would your spirit fill us with a passion to pursue each other as you continue to pursue us? Would you continue to bless our body and bring us to new depths of relationship in the future? Would you help us to continue to welcome new members into the fold, Lord, with the same enthusiasm that we would an old friend? And if there is someone here who feels a desire for this connection, a desire for relational pursuit, and that opportunity hasn't happened yet, I pray that your spirit would move even today and create an opportunity for that connection. Lord, would you equip us as a church to be an example to the world of what it means to follow you? Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.